Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in on our sermon series through the Book of Romans. Throughout history, this has been regarded as the greatest letter ever written. It has been used by God to change people's lives for centuries, and we have prayed that God would use it to change your life as well. In a world full of bad news, Romans is about good news, and we hope God uses this sermon to help you believe and enjoy the good news of the gospel. Thanks for listening. The scripture for today is Romans 9, 19 through 29. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Amen. Grab a seat. Welcome. So good to see you at Redeemer this morning. Many of you kids are back in school. Maybe kids are heading to school. Uh, Just uh, before we get started, I thought I'd give you a little bit of helpful information. Uh, You can kind of test out different areas of the room. Uh, Some are hotter than others. Some are colder than others. Some are louder than others. Some are quieter than others. Uh, I don't mean during the sermon, just get up and wander to a different place. But uh, beforehand or next week, try different places if it's too loud, too quiet, or if you like some air conditioning. There's a place up there in the top where the AC hits perfectly that is my personal favorite. Uh, If you have a Bible, let me invite you to go to Romans chapter 9. If you're brand new with us, uh, we are teaching through the book of Romans, and we are in chapter 9. Covered the first half of it last week, and uh, we're dealing with the second half this week. And this is just um, historically a very difficult text, Uh, sometimes difficult to understand, but really not as much difficult to understand as it is uh, we struggle to believe that it's true. Uh, And uh, I had a few people after the sermon last week come up to me, most of them with very uh, large, wide open eyes, and they said, uh, wow, that was very deep. And I said, yes, uh, it it was. Uh, He's getting into some very, very deep uh, things about who God is and how God operates in the world, and that's uh, that's a good thing uh, for us to get into some very deep things because we're trying to understand uh, who God is and how we relate to Him. So uh, deep is not bad. Uh, We're going to be in the deep end of the pool again today. Uh, Sometimes uh, we'll be in the shallow end of the pool. Uh, The shallow end of the pool is not things that are less important. Uh, Sometimes it's just things that are easier to understand, and so I think we need to use the 
the whole pool. Uh, just so that you know, uh, our commitment at Redeemer is we're just going to use the whole pool. Use the kiddie pool. Uh, sometimes go into the deep end sometimes because that's what Paul seems to do. Uh, Paul prefers the deep end. In fact, so much so that the Apostle Peter uh, told some people, he said one time that uh, when Paul writes some things, I get really confused. Uh, Peter had a hard time sometimes keeping up with Paul because Paul loved uh, the deep end of the pool. Uh, but listen to what St. Augustine said, and I'll explain why I'm talking about this in just a minute. He's talking about the Bible and, and, and really the gospel, and he says this, it's shallow enough for a child not to drown, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim. Uh, St. Jerome, who uh, in the fourth century was the one who uh, really single-handedly translated the Bible into Latin um, so that people could have more access to what we call it the Latin Vulgate. So he had read uh, the Bible, not just read it cover to cover, but intimately enough to be able to translate it. After he had read through and poured through the Scriptures, this is what he said about um, the book that we love. He said, the Scriptures are shallow enough for a baby to come and drink without fear of drowning. But they're deep enough for a theologian to swim in without ever touching bottom. Both the shallow end, the kiddie pool, and the deep end are both important. Uh, oftentimes, the very basic things that Paul refers to as milk, uh, it's, it's, it's important, especially for, for new believers, for non-believers that are coming in and trying to understand what the Christian faith is, what Jesus is about. Uh, we offer very basic things, uh, and it's basic enough that you can explain the gospel to a six-year-old uh, who has never had a philosophy class, and they can grasp the basics of the gospel. But also, you can get the most uh, incredible theological minds ever, men and women, and they can spend their lives trying to understand it and not ever plumb the depths. Uh, so just hear from me. We're committed to using the whole pool, uh, and Paul was as well. Uh, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 3, he, he was frustrated a little bit with the church because he, he said, we, we should have moved on from the basic things uh, from milk into meat, but uh, we have to keep going back for milk because you're not maturing. So he obviously sees this natural progression you're a new Christian, you get milk. And if you get milk, you get stronger, you get nourished, you move on to what? Everybody said meat. This is the natural progression in our house. They get milk for like two weeks and then it's meat. Uh, give them deer steak. We'll puree it if we have to since they don't have teeth. Uh, but as we progress, uh, we, we progress to, to deeper things. And I think even some of us, I was talking to someone today um, just between services, that they, they knew some deep things, been a Christian for a long time. She's very well read, very well studied, great theologian, but she said sometimes it's just good for my soul to hear very simple, very basic things, and I'm the same way. Uh, so I spend a lot of time studying the Bible, and there's some things that I still don't understand, that I struggle with, that I wonder how in the world is this true? I don't understand how this works out. And so at the end of the day, literally at the end of the day sometimes, just remind myself, you know what? Jesus rose from the dead, and that is so basic, and yet that's enough for me to lay my head on my pillow, go to sleep, sleep soundly, and trust God. This is what uh, the writer of Hebrews says about this in chapter 5. Uh, he's talking to Christians and churches. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. You've been Christians long enough. You should have got the milk where you've moved on to things so you could actually teach others and feed others milk. For by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. He said, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
basic idea is we need both. We need the shallow end. We need the deep end. And as we mature, we need to be able to uh, really get into some text. And so Romans chapter 9 is the deep end. In my estimation, there's two main reasons Romans chapter 9 is so problematic and difficult for people. And in the second half of this, he's going to actually answer both of the questions that people normally have and the two questions uh, or the two difficulties that maybe you have had uh, walking through Romans thus far is we have, uh, number one, a difficulty with allowing God to be God, and number two, we have a problem with God's justice or wrath or judgment. So we have a problem sometimes with allowing God to be God. Sometimes the mentality can seep into us like, "Um, God, I think God needs to answer to me, uh, not so much I answer to him. I think uh, maybe God needs to run some things past me, and uh, I think I need to kind of get to decide what is fair and what is just. Uh, I think uh, we should judge God uh, and not Him judge us. And if you have ever read the book of Job, uh, you know that's dangerous territory when you start getting into judging God and telling Him how He should act and what He should do. So maybe you've had that question. Paul's going to answer that. Um, Job Job was struggling to understand why God allowed him to suffer so much, and so he actually asked some questions, and he actually began to judge God. And if you go read it, it's pretty fantastic. In Job 38, 39, 40, God basically says, Hey, Job, um, why don't you sit down for a minute? I know you've got some questions, but where were you when I laid out the foundations of the world? Where were you when I told the sea it can only come this far? Basically, he says, you've got to be careful judging me because you haven't been around and you haven't seen what I've seen. So it's going to answer that question. If we have a difficulty with God being God. Number two, a lot of people have a problem with God's justice and his wrath and any kind of punishment. Okay, this is the phrase that I often hear, and maybe you have thought it before. Maybe this is a a question that you have right now. A God of love would never send someone to hell. That's a, a, a question people have. A problem that they have is a God that claims to be loving, yet also seems to be full of wrath and justice and punishment. And we have this, this false idea that those two things are separate and they, they're not congruent and they can't go together, but it's, it's, it's and I'll explain this in a minute, but it's, it's a very hypocritical statement because we don't apply that anywhere else. Uh, we don't think anywhere else that those two things are mutually exclusive except when we try to apply it to God. So you wouldn't apply that kind of rationale to a, a, a rancher who's got some animals and he loves the animals uh, and you wouldn't come up to him and say, wait a minute, Mr. Rancher, sir. You said that you love and you love your goats and you love your sheep, uh, but you sure had a lot of wrath for that rattlesnake, right? Or that coyote. It's like, no, in order to, to love something, to have, have love and goodness, you also have to have some element of wrath or justice against something that might threaten what you love. Um, how about teachers? Any teachers in the room? So excited to be back in school. Don't get a lot of amens round one, week one. Let's say you're a teacher, you love your kids. Nobody would ever present you with this idea and say, well, I thought you loved your kids. You keep talking about how much you love your kids, so why are you so uh, harsh to the bully? Well, because you love your kids. And if you love kids and there's something threatening them, if you don't have an element of, of wrath or justice, then you're actually not that good, right? Let's keep going. What about a mom? 
Um, how many of you would say, I don't know, this mom, she claims that she loves her children, and that she's full of goodness and kindness and compassion, um, but she sur- sure seemed to, uh, to deal with that pedophile with a lot of wrath and anger. Why is that? Because she's good and loving. And if something evil exists, you cannot be good and loving and absent of wrath or justice against those things. What about a refugee that might uh, come to our country uh, escaping a difficult situation uh, in their land and they land here? I doubt they would uh, be absolutely shocked and think, oh my gosh, I thought this was a place of goodness and love. And they actually have a department called the Department of Justice. Because in order for it to be a good place, there has to be justice. Like, what does the justice system do? Oh, they, they deal with the bad guys. Because you can't be good and apathetic about evil. So the only way logically you can come to the conclusion to say, why is God, why does He say that He's loving yet He sends people to hell? The only way that you can separate God's love and His goodness with His wrath and judgment is if you don't believe there is evil in the world. Or if you don't believe there is injustice, that is the only way that you can have a God that is only loving and not just. Are you all with me? They are not separate in every realm of our lives. They have to go together, and so it's, it, it's not fair of us to realize that those two things have to go together and think they can't go together with God. So um, th- th- that's one of the questions also that he's going to answer. That's the introduction. If you're in Romans chapter 9, verse 19, say ready. This is what God's Word says from the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. He says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. This answers the question that we kind of ask, like, is God uh, allowed to be God, or does he need to answer to us? And he uses the, uh, the metaphor, the illustration of a, a potter and, uh, and his clay. And uh, so if you imagine a potter, he's got a big lump of clay, then it's kind of up to him what he makes. Uh, we got some clay from Walmart the other day, and uh, our six-year-old Hudson pulled it out and was sitting uh, at the bar in his stool with the clay, and I said, hey, buddy, what are you going to make? And he said, whatever I want. And I said, that'll preach. And then he made a Power Ranger. Um, and it's like, he's the, the potter, and he has some clay, so he gets to decide what to make. That's just the very simple analogy that Paul uses. Like, the potter decides what he wants to do, and it's his right because he's the potter, and, and the clay belongs to him. So if you apply that to God, it's like God is a potter, and, and, and we are clay. He makes human beings, and he gets to decide. And he's well within his rights to, to make what he wants, and he talks about making two different vessels, one for honorable use, uh, one for dishonorable use. Uh, basically, he's saying if a potter sits down, can take his lump of clay, cut it in half, pull half out, and he can make something beautiful from it. He can make uh, a a beautiful vase. He can make a lamp from it. uh, And then he can take from the same lump of clay, and he can make what what Paul's referring to, a vessel of dishonorable use, is a chamber pot. 
Uh, and if you have never used a chamber pot, um, then you are missing out. Uh, that's, a di- that's a dishonorable thing that's meant to be, uh, you know, kept in secret. And he's saying like a potter, if he has the clay, he can make both honorable and dishonorable out of the same clay. And it's up to him because he's the potter. He gets to do what he wants. So that's what Paul's saying. It's like if God is God, he can do what he wants because he is the potter. And so then the question is, and we learned last week that as the potter with the clay, he never does anything that is unjust. He's always just, uh, and he's full of mercy and full of grace. So the question is that he answers next, what then has the potter, what has God decided to do with this clay? What has God decided to do with people, with human beings? Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, wrath is not just kind of Anger, just flying off the handle and being upset for no reason. Uh, wrath in the Bible is always justified. It, it's, it, it's perfectly fit to the crime, so it's justified anger towards sin. And uh, if God, if there's no sin, then there's no room for wrath. But if there is any type of sin or any type of injustice, um, then a good God, by the definition of being good has got to have justified wrath towards that. So he says, like, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his, known his power, has endured with much patience vessels, number one, vessels of wrath de- prepared for destruction. Verse 23, he keeps going. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. That's the vessel number two, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So we're going to unpack what Paul is talking about when he's talking about God making humans as two different kind of vessels, what that means, and there are massive implications for each one of you to understand what Jesus is saying through Paul, because this is the heart of of the, of the gospel. This is the heart of the Bible. This is the heart of the message Jesus preached. This is the heart of the message the church has preached for 2,000 years, that human beings uh, are, are, are different than the rest of creation. We have much more value because we have been made in the image of God. When God was creating, when He created human beings, He imprinted us with His image, the image of God. And one of the things that means is that while we don't have an infinite past, uh, you will have an infinite infinite future. You will exist somewhere, one of two places, forever and ever and ever. You are made in the image of God. You're now an eternal being. That's Old Testament, New Testament. That's a biblical thing. And what Paul is saying is that God, as the potter, has created humans, and they will end up one of two places. They will be one of two vessels, a vessel of wrath or a vessel of mercy. So let's look at the first one. This is option number one, vessel of wrath. What he's talking about is a vessel of wrath is a person that ends up in hell or more precisely in the lake of fire because the Bible talks about hell being a temporary place. You don't spend eternity in hell. You go there for a temporary place until he says hell will be thrown into um, the lake of fire. And then some people will go to heaven temporarily until Jesus recreates a new heaven and a new earth and then reside with him forever in eternity in the new heaven. You need to know that the Bible teaches you're going to be in one of those places. You are either going to be a vessel to demonstrate God's wrath or a vessel to demonstrate God's mercy. 
So option one, the vessels of wrath. Uh, it talks about, it, it says there that he endured them with much patience, meaning the same thing that John 3.16 talks about, um, that people, because of sin and rebellion, are headed that way already, and he doesn't just necessarily cause us to go send us there. We've sent ourselves there. It says he passively endured them with much patience. And in hell, you need to know this, that, th- that there is no injustice. Anybody that goes to hell is, is a vessel of wrath, it will be just, which, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that's hard for some of us to stomach or to understand or to believe uh, because we have a misunderstanding of what, what, what sinners have done to rebel against God. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 25. He's talking about people going to one of two places, and he says, and these will go away. These are people who have rejected the gospel, have not put their faith in Jesus. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There is no injustice in hell. God is fully just to send sinners to hell. And, and one of the problems that we have with this, it, we just have a, a, mis, a fundamental misunderstanding of sin. Because we, we think of it as like, oh, that sounds like a pretty harsh punishment for somebody that just kind of messed up. I mean, if you're driving down the highway, speed limit 75, you go 80, you get pulled over. He's like, you're going to hell. You'd be like, that's a little harsh. Right? But, and that's, that's how we think of like sin. It's like, I just kind of messed up a little bit. That is not how the Bible describes sin. The Bible describes sin as open rebellion against the design of our creation. We were designed, God, when he was thinking about us, he's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create some people, some human beings, put my image in, in them, and their purpose, their divine purpose for existing is to worship me, to love me, to honor me, to obey me, to respect me, to worship me. And it's not like we just messed up a little bit, went 80 miles an hour into 75 miles an hour. The, the, the Bible talks about sin as being open rebellion, that each one of us said, no, you know what, God? Um, no. I will worship myself. Um, I will use my money uh, to do what I want and to worship me, not to make much of you. Uh, I will do what I want with my sex life. I will do what I want with my business. And it's, it's a very different thing to just mess up a little bit or to be an open, abject rebellion to God. And, and I think it's interesting that the perpetrators of disobedience or disrespect or whatever, the perpetrators never take it nearly as seriously as the one that they perpetrate against. If you're a parent and your kids have ever disobeyed or disrespected you, that made you more upset than it made them. Am I right? If they have offended you, disobeyed you, uh, they're, they're (laughs) they're never as concerned as you are. If you have ever been to jury duty or been to court, the judge always seems to be much more concerned about justice than the perpetrators. That's why we're perpetrators, because we don't care as much about honoring a certain person or a certain object. So like, we need to know that nothing unjust happens if God decides to punish someone or gives wrath to someone that is evil, that is idolatrous, or that is rebellious. So what do they do then if they are vessels of wrath? They magnify half of God's character. Like what, what, what do people that are vessels of wrath, what do they do? Listen, they magnify God's power. He just said it. 
he just he was just talking about the vessels. He says to make in, in order to desire to show his wrath and to make known his power, they magnify uh, God's power, his holiness, his justice, and his wrath, and that's part of his character and who he is. And they, they magnify that. And you need to know, we've, we've, we've talked about this so many times in Romans, that the Bible puts all of us in that category. We start off there as enemies of God that are separated from him, that are bent on sin, that are head, running headlong towards rebellion and towards hell. And, and so like the question of, well, who needs to be saved from that? In the Bible, like you need to know that you do, the irreligious pagans, the ones that are outright giving God the bird, doing what they want, they need to be saved. And the religious people that grow up in church and are somewhat moral are just equally need salvation. So this, this is the first one, the first vessel. Some of you are like, let's get on to the second vessel. That's enough. Here we go. Vessels of mercy. Vessels of mercy. People who are recipients of God's mercy that spend eternity in, he- in heaven and eventually a new earth with God. What about them? It, it talks about them in a, in a different way than it talked about vessels of wrath. It says he prepared beforehand. He was actively involved in rescuing them. I, I heard a pastor say it this way, that Jesus is the author of our salvation, but we are the offer, uh, author of our damnation. Like we have chosen this way, and God has chosen to get in, to intervene, and to save some. He has prepared them for what? For glory. So vessels of mercy, people that respond to the gospel. They're vessels of mercy. And Jesus said it in, in, in Matthew 25. He said, these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Well, what does that mean? Well, we could do a huge study on what heaven is like, what uh, people that have embraced God's mercy get to experience. But Jesus says it's eternal life, like life that never ends. So like in heaven, in this place for vessels of mercy, there's worship. Like, and it's not just singing. It's everything about our existence exists to uh, uplift and magnify Jesus. Uh, there is joy, endless joy, nothing that steals joy. There is um, absolute and perfect peace. Uh, there is food. There is wine. There is friendships. There's family. Uh, there's just this unending uh, life that belongs to those who are vessels of mercy. What do they do? They magnify half of God's character. They magnify God's mercy, God's grace, his goodness, his patience, his sacrifice. I I think this is what Paul is getting at. The potter can make two things out of clay, but whatever he makes is going to serve his purpose. God has purposed that human beings will magnify him. But here's the truth. You get to decide which part of God's character you will magnify based on how you respond to Jesus. That's the big idea. So then how do we get to be the recipients of God's mercy? You want to say, well, I think I would much rather magnify God's mercy and his grace and his patience and his forgiveness than to magnify his holiness and his justice and his wrath. Verse 24, Paul talks about that all of us get invited to walk through the same door. There's, only, there's one way that people get to be the recipients of God's mercy. Verse 24, even us whom he has called, not 
from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. We've been talking a lot about Jews and Gentiles because God chose to use the Jewish people beginning with Abraham. He said, I'll make you a great nation, and from you will all nations of the earth be blessed. He's promised to bring a Savior, and He's going to bring Jesus and do it through the family of the Jewish people. But He has opened it and says, He's basically going to say, not all Jewish people are going to heaven, and even some Gentiles are getting in. So the question is, well, how do they get in? What's What's the door? Not, all Jew, not, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, that's Gentiles. He's like, okay, they weren't the chosen people, they were Gentiles. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. It's like some, some Gentiles are getting in. They're going to be vessels of mercy. What do they do? We'll find out in a minute. I will call my people and her who was not beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. So concerning the Jews, just because you're born a Jew, does that mean you're a vessel of mercy? He says, concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. So some... Gentiles will be saved, not all Jews, but some Jews will be saved. Verse 28, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. You should circle that, and you should believe that. Um, it's It's a burdensome thing to preach certain topics and certain ideas, and the idea of heaven and hell is a difficult yet incredibly necessary thing to talk about if it's true, right? If the Bible is true, if Jesus says is who He says He is, it would be horribly unjust on my part to not tell you about it, right? Like if somebody goes to hell and they're like, I don't know, my church, they talked about how to fix my marriage and they talked about how to get out of debt and how to deal with anxiety, but they never told me that there was a heaven and a hell. I would have horribly abdicated my role. And Jesus says, like, we'll just piece this apart for a minute. The Lord will carry out His sentence. He's going to, Jesus is coming back. He is physically going to come back to earth to carry out his sentence, and he says, to the earth, both fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You need to know Jesus is coming back, and he is not coming back like he came the first time. See, a lot of people, they were like, you know, for hundreds of years, they, they, they maybe were aware of prophecies that God was going to visit earth, and they thought, that sounds like a fairy tale really don't think, maybe it's metaphorical, but really don't think that's going to happen. And against all odds, God pulled it off. Jesus was born. He performed miracles, raised people from the dead, eventually would raise himself from the dead, and then the world would be convinced, oh my gosh, God visited earth. He did it. And, but but the, the first coming of Jesus, the, the first advent is Jesus coming in humility to, lay, to live a perfect life, to lay his life down, to be crucified in the place of sinners, and by grace to offer salvation. He came in humility and in grace, and that is not how he's coming the second time. So some people right now are in the same place they were before Christmas, before Jesus was born. Like, I don't think Jesus, I mean, it's, it's metaphorical, it sounds like a fairy tale, Surely Jesus, like the man, 
named Jesus with a body is not coming back here, and yet the Bible relentlessly says he is. And what is he doing? He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. There is no reincarnation where, where, where you have a, a second chance, and if you don't do really good in this life, you don't really nail it, then you just get reincarnated and get to, to try again. Uh, there's no purgatory. Um, the, the idea that the Catholic Church has uh, perpetuated over the years that there is a, a place where if you, just, you don't nail it this life, well, you get to go to, to purgatory and you get a second chance. That is not in the Bible, and you need to know that. Because you need to know this life is your chance. If Jesus tells the truth, this life is your chance to respond to who he is and to what he's done. Jesus says, not purgatory, he says it is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. Uh, there's no universalism, um, this idea that's gaining a lot of popularity even in our country and our culture. And really it's people that are struggling with the idea that God is just if he punishes sinners. So they made this idea that, well, I think at the end God just saves everybody and takes everybody to heaven. And there's two problems with that. Number one is Jesus and number two is the Bible. That's just not what they teach. There's no, you know, every, everybody goes to one of two places, and it depends on what you do with Jesus. He keeps going, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, the people who shouldn't even have got in, they weren't, they weren't God's chosen people, they didn't, uh, we didn't send the, the covenants and the promises of the Messiah through them. How, how are they getting in? How are they going to be uh, in heaven? How are they going to be forgiven? What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? This is what he's saying. He's like, they're not good people. Some of the Gentiles were just absolute pagans. So if, if you're getting in by works, he's like, they don't make it, but somehow they got in. How did they attain it? He says that is a righteousness that is by faith. How do Gentiles get in? It's not by good works. It's by faith. They have a righteousness. They just didn't earn it. Verse 31, but that Israel, okay, so God's chosen people, they were very moral people. They, had, they did a better job obeying the rules than we do. Uh, you know, their lives and what morally on the outside, what they did, that's, that's kind of like what we want our kids to become is the Jewish people. So he says, but Israel, who pursued a law that led to righteousness, he's like, they're really good people. They got a lot of things to their credit as far as works are concerned. They did not succeed in reaching the law. He's like, they were trying to do it by good works, but they didn't do it. And you and I are not nearly as good as them, verse 32, by moral performance. Verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, as, but as if it were based on works. He says, they have stumbled. They, meaning anybody that pursues right standing with God, righteousness, forgiveness, mercy, justice, heaven, whatever you want to call it. Anybody that pursues it by works, he says, they stumble over Jesus. Why? They didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Je Jesus oftentimes, Old Testament, New Testament, has talked about a stone. A and really, he's a stone that's set in the path of every human being that what you do with him determines what kind of vessel you are. 
It determines what you do with Jesus, whether you stumble over Him as a stumbling stone and are offended by Him or embrace Him as a Savior and He becomes the cornerstone. Uh, it de- depends on, on, on what the kind of the stone does to you. But he says, like, they stumbled over Him because He's a stumbling stone. So how do people, both, both near and far, all sorts of different religions, even Americans, how do we stumble over Jesus? Uh, number one, many people are offended at the message Jesus preaches. They stumble over this and they're offended by Jesus. How many of you know Jesus is offensive? Anybody? If you have read the Bible and some of the things Jesus says and you're honest, you're like, that's offensive. He was so offensive. I was thinking about this the other day. How many of you think Trump is offensive? Or Biden is offensive, I'll play both sides of the aisle. Uh, No matter how offensive they are, they only offend half of the country. The other half loves them. Jesus effectively offended both sides so much that both the left and the right wing in Israel couldn't agree on anything except finally they agreed that Jesus had to go. Why? He was very offensive. He told the pagans they needed to repent. He told the religious people they needed to repent. Some people are just so offended that they can't get over Jesus. They can't embrace him as a savior because what he said is offensive. What he says is that we cannot fix ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot earn our way to God. And we have to humble ourselves and repent and believe. So some people stumble because that's too offensive. Uh, Some people just simply stumble over Jesus because pride is so strong. Because he calls for this deep element of humility that we have to be humble. Nobody nobody prideful gets into heaven. And if you're honest, your pride and my pride is much stronger than, than we give it credit for. Because while the gospel is the simplest thing on the planet, you don't have to do a thing. All you have to do is believe. Some people cannot, as easy as it is, it is impossible because they have to lay down their pride and say, I can't do it. Some people stumble because of the offensiveness. Some people stumble because of pride. Some people stumble because it seems like a narrow way. Uh, Jesus himself said it was a narrow way. But if he's God, he gets to decide what the way is. Basically, when when Jesus and his message and his offensiveness and his gospel gets dropped in our lap, we have to decide whether we're going to treat him as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and reject him or embrace his message, and then he becomes the cornerstone on which we build our lives. And Jesus says, if you'll build your lives on the stone, though the winds and the waves may come, you'll stand, you'll be fine because you've built your house on the rock. That's our choice. Every... (laughs) Every one of the world religions and, and man's attempts to try to, to bridge the gap or the chasm between man and God, uh, there's like this big pile of things on this side that all have to do with works, the, how we work our way up to God. Um, Judaism, this is the Jewish religion, uh, people that embrace the Old Testament, do not believe Jesus is the Messiah or is the Christ. Uh, it's a works-based trying to earn their way through the law back up to God. And what God has just said is that he rejected it. Like he, he doesn't accept works-based. You, you're just not good enough to work your way up to God. That's Judaism. What Judaism is built on is a works-based. Uh, Islam uh, is built on a works-based system. They believe if I obey, therefore I'm accepted by Allah, and if I'm not able to uh, obey, I won't be accepted. It's works-based, working our way up. Hinduism, um, the idea of karma, which is basically the sum total of your good works, uh, or the, the sum total of your works, uh, and if they're good, 
good karma comes back around. If it's bad, bad karma comes back around. And if you're bad, you get reincarnated as a cat, right? If you're good, maybe you can get to be a dog. You'll get that later. Um, Catholicism. Uh, I am not, many of you know that my, my mother grew up Catholic, and I'm not saying that no Catholic is a Christian. I'm talking about what the Catholic Church uh, teaches and preaches is a works-based religion. You need to do good and avoid bad and confess to the priest, and if you don't do it well enough, you can go to purgatory. It's a works-based religion trying to earn your way to God. God said he absolutely rejects any of our attempts in our own merit, to, to, to work, to, 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 to have works that earn favor. What about American Christianity? And I'm not using this the way I normally do, okay? I'm using this because there's an interesting study that just came out that has been the trajectory in our country for years. Um, but this uh, study that just came out is from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, massive study. And um, basically, uh, they were trying to see what professing American Christians believe. So these are all Christians, or, or people that are Americans, and profess to be Christians, and for the first time, this has been the trajectory, but for the first time, according to this study, most American Christians believe that God will accept them if they simply have good works, which is what God has said he rejects, which just quite honestly means the majority, if these stats are correct, they're trusting in their works, they're not trusting in Christ's works. The majority of professing American Christians have rejected the gospel and are not Christians. Why does that burden me? Because we live in Midland. (laughs) Because Jesus, he, he was fighting both sides. He was trying to preach the gospel to the irreligious, to the pagans, to the ones that were just overtly sinning and knew it. And he would share the gospel with them. You need to be saved. You are in danger. God's going to judge you. You need to be saved. But then he had to deal with the religious people that thought they were fine. And they gave him fits, did they not? Which ones murdered Jesus? The religious people. See, the ones that grow up and they have a morality and kind of like, well, I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job. I mean, I'm not an evil person. I'm not like the pagans. I'm, 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 and I've got this works-based mentality. Listen, like you just need, you need to know. If you're an American, if you profess Christianity, unless you have transferred your faith to G- from yourself to Jesus, you are in danger. I mean, Jesus talked about heaven and hell a lot. Thir- 13% of everything that Jesus taught, 13% was about hell and judgment. Seems like a pretty big deal to him. Over 60 verses in the New Testament that talk about it. And, and if you look at the life of Jesus, he, he, he didn't seem like a dude that, was, that, that thought hell was a figurative place. He was living his life on a mission as if he believed that he was literally trying to save some real people from real danger. And the the hardest time that he had was with good people, religious people. Bible Belt type people, because you, like when you start preaching, I tell some of my buddies that, that they're, they're, they're planting churches and they're preaching in very, very non-Christian places, you know, just pagan places. I'm like, you guys have it so easy. At least they know they're lost. 
At least they know they're saved, so that's the starting point. You can share the gospel with them, hope that they believe. In the Bible Belt, you got, you're working like 50 yards behind the starting line. Like you've got to spend time trying to convince people that are decently good moral people that they're, they're lost until you even get to the starting line. So this study says that um, a majority of American Christians believe that salvation can be earned if a person is generally good. You just, you need to consider that that is what God rejects. He rejects morality. This is why I'm one of the main proponents, I think, that proves Christianity was not made up by man. Like every other religion that was come up with man, like, okay, we think there's a, a distance between us and God. Here's our plan. All of those... Judaism, Hinduism, Mormonism, whatever it is, it's like we're the heroes. Okay, well, we're in the story, and how do we get to God? Uh, We march ourselves right up there. We fix ourselves, and we're the heroes at the end of the day. Because nobody, like, like God, God authored Christianity and the Bible, and why, like, you start piecing through the details of the gospel, and we're not the heroes, Nobody comes up with that. If you had to write a story, you had to write a novel, and you wrote yourself into it, you would probably write yourself in as the hero. If you had to write a story, and you were in the Olympics, and you wrote yourself in, you wouldn't write yourself in, I came in dead last. Yet that's the story of Christianity. Man didn't come up with it because man wants to be the hero. The story of Christianity is that you have to come to the end of yourself, and this is what saving biblical gospel faith is. Bible Belt people, you, you need to know this. It is not believing that God exists. We've talked about this before. The Bible says even the demons believe in God's existence. That's not saving. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a conscious decision to abandon your own works and trying to please God and in humility and repentance fully embrace that Jesus did what we can't do. To fully put your, shift your, not just believing that Jesus exists and he's a historical being, shifting your, your faith and your hope from your own works to the works of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. That is the only faith that God accepts. And that's the, the theme of the book of Romans, the greatest letter ever written. Paul's whole theme is that the righteous shall live by faith. He's trying to say, like, you don't, you don't get to work your way there. You have to believe your way there. So, like, I, I, I understand that this is still somewhat the deep end of the pool, but let me bring it back to uh, the, the shallow end a little bit. This is still the, the most, most basic verse in the Bible, John 3.16. It's exactly what it's talking about. In fact, I'm going to turn there. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there with me. Or if you know by heart, you can follow along, mainly because I don't want you to think I might miss a word or two if I quote it, so I want you to know that I'm reading from um, the Bible itself so that you know I'm not making this stuff up. For God so loved the world. What that means is people. That he gave his only son, that whoever believes, it's faith, it's believing in Jesus who came, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish. Like the world is on a trajectory to perish, all of them. And he says, if you believe, that's your way off. That's your way into the vessel of mercy. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's deep in, that's shallow in. The whole, the story of the Bible is that sinners are in trouble in the hands of a very just, very holy, very merciful God. So he sent Jesus to live a perfect, sinless life, provide all the works to please God, to give right standing and righteousness with God. And by grace, through faith, he offers it to anyone that's willing to jump off the train, to abandon their own works, to trust in him by faith. So if you don't stumble over the stumbling block and the block of the rock of offense, you embrace him that no Jesus, he is who he says he is. He was perfect, he was sinless, he pleased the Father in word, thought, and deed. He died in my place for my sins, and you repent and you believe and you put your faith in him, then he becomes the cornerstone. Not just on which you live for eternity. I get this question often especially new believers, non-believers. Is the Bible only a book about what happens in eternity? Does it have any bearing or any help on my life now? Absolutely. In fact, I love the practicality of, of the Bible. I mean, we, we preach very practical things. I think God wants to help you with, uh, with your marriage. He wants to help your marriages and your, friend, your friendships, and he wants to speak into your finances, and he wants to help you understand anxiety. But all of those are secondary to being forgiven and belonging to Jesus. So when you embrace Jesus as the cornerstone, just a few things that happen. You get forgiven, just absolutely forgiven. You remember the story of the thief on the cross? Who It's a little bit of a misnomer that he was a thief because in the Jewish time he would not be crucified for stealing something. Uh, he no doubt murdered a few people at least when he was stealing things to uh, be crucified. And uh, like a horrible dude, lots of sin, lots of shame, lots of guilt. All he did with, with his last breath was say, Jesus, remember, forgive me. He, he leaned on the mercy of God and Jesus said, I'll see you in a minute. <laughs> I'll see you in a minute. Today you'll be with me in paradise. A hundred percent mercy. You get forgiven. You get righteousness. This is, it, it, I love that phrase. We just read it. It says, how did the Gentiles get in? They had righteousness, but I know they, I, I, I met some of them. They didn't earn it. Two ways you get into heaven, all right? I, I know I said there's only one. There's two. You earn your way in by being perfect. You, you earn your own righteousness which the Bible is just really clear. That's a very small category. Jesus, he's in that, he, he fills up that category. That's option one, you're perfect. Option two, you're given righteousness from someone else. The Reformers called it an alien righteousness. We didn't produce it. It came from without, not from within. You, you get an eternity with Jesus. You're going to live eternally somewhere. When you embrace Jesus as a cornerstone, you get to be with him forever in heaven on the new earth. You get internal peace that begins now. You get everlasting joy that begins now. You get true purpose with your life, something that is greater than yourself. You get the Holy Spirit that's promised to invade you and fill you up and testify that you belong to God and help you along the way and teach you uh, the Bible and what God is like. Um, you get everlasting true love like and, and intimacy with God, and intimacy is where you're, you're fully known and you're yet fully accepted. Some of us struggle with our relationships. Like, I, I can't be fully known because if they know everything about me, I'm not going to be accepted yet in the gospel. He, he knows every, you don't have to hide anything from him, and you will always be accepted because of Christ. You, he, he, he changes everything about your life. So this is my, my invitation. 
for you is to truly consider in, in, in the most honest place in your heart where you can get, where nobody else has access to, only you can answer the question, what you have done with Jesus. Not how good you are, not how bad you are. See, a lot of religious people, they, they struggle with this idea that they, they think they're better than they are, and so they have a hard time thinking they need the mercy and the grace of God. A lot of irreligious pagan people, they know that what they've done is wrong, and they have a hard time believing that God would, in fact, give them mercy and grace. So they, one thinks that they deserve it when they don't, and another one doesn't think that they could even deserve it if God gives it to them. So in an honest place in your heart, what have you done with Jesus. If this book is true and Jesus is true, that is the most important question you will ever answer. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I, I invite you and I, I beg you, God, I felt such a weight and a burden for this people, this church, this city, this, this place that, that you have some of your image bearers that you love and want to shower your grace and mercy on. I have such a burden that they truly embrace Christ. And yet, God, nobody can do anything unless your spirit moves. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would sweep through and issue out huge measures of humility that you would allow people to confess their sin to you, to truly put their faith in you as a Savior, to abandon their own works and their own attempts to be good people and to trust that you died for them. God, I pray for those of you who you have already captured our attention and our hearts and our worship. I just pray that you might stir in us so much peace and joy that it's attractive to the people around us. God, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work the fruits of your spirit in our lives for our good, for the good of our neighbors, for your glory. God, I pray for this morning that you would cause someone to be born again, that you would call someone home, that you would make today the day of salvation for someone in this room that needs to be saved by Jesus. We love you. Pray this all in your name because you're alive and you're well and you answer the prayers of your people. Amen. Thank you for joining us today on this podcast. We would love for you to join us at one of our in-person services as well. For more information or to support our ministry, please visit RedeemerMidland.org.